Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From herbs to fruit, we can learn a lot by studying food. Now, herbs like oregano and thyme have important roles in cuisine, but they also have some pretty amazing chemical properties, which we're only now starting to understand how they're formed. Plus a story involving cloning and a fantastic voyage and journey from China and the mountainous regions all the way to Japan and onto your plate and in your hand, the tale of the Mandarin. Now, thanks to my Italian heritage, I love cooking, and when I cook, I add an abundance of herbs to my dishes. So much so that often I get accused of adding way too much of certain ingredients, certain herbs, to a dish that doesn't need the embellishment. And maybe that's a flaw on my own behalf, but I just can't help adding oregano, or maybe rosemary and thyme, to a dish, just to spice it up, along with, of course, the large amounts of garlic. Now, One of the things about oregano and thyme is, aside from just smelling good, oregano being often the smell that you associate with pizza or pasta sauce. And then thyme being a smell that you'll often find in particular a lot of roasted dishes or maybe in some baked goods. Now, these two herbs have long been known to have some pretty interesting properties. And researchers from the Martin Luther University Halle Wittenberg, MLU, and Purdue University in the United States have dived into this topic of these particular herbs and published a paper in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And what they were investigating was something that I, in fact, didn't know about these herbs that I use so much in my cooking. And for a long time, actually, researchers had a good understanding that these were helpful herbs, but not really how exactly they managed to undertake such a miraculous feat of chemistry inside of their leaves. So to start this journey, we're gonna talk a little bit about things that you can do with thyme. Now, when we often hear talks about medicinal plants, this is obviously a foundational piece of science. Plants were used by people for millennia to help cure illnesses, whether that be colds, coughs, sore throats, you name it. People had plant-based remedies, teas, and so on to assist with these. Now, a lot of the times, it's not like we forgot these or these were debunked. We just refined them, figured out what was the most useful part about that, extracted that essence, and then turned it into medicine. That, that's what established herbal remedy becomes with rigorous science applied to it for many years in industrial production. That's how you make medicine. And that's pretty much how it works. And so when we look at something like thyme, thyme has inside of it an essential oil that you can extract called thymol. Now, thymol actually has some secretolic or antibacterial and antispasmodic properties to it. And that's one of the reasons why it's traditionally been used in tea for colds, cough syrups, and as a herbal remedy even for bronchitis. That's because the ingredient, one of the ingredients inside that, one of the oils in that thymol inside thyme, named after thyme, by the way, is actually such a very beneficial antibacterial agent. Now, oregano has a high concentration of a chemical called carvacrol, and this actually has pretty similar antibacterial antispasmodic properties. They're two similar acting chemicals, both produced inside two different herbs. Now, the thing is, we knew that these plants had these properties. We've known that for hundreds or thousands or more years, but we didn't quite sure how exactly these were produced inside the plants. And this is a bit of a mystery. Basically, the researchers could see the end product, the thymol and the carvacol, but they had no idea how these were actually produced inside the plant. 
For a long time, it was assumed that the P-cymonine was an intermediary product of the thymol and the carvacrol synthesis, the creation step of this huge production-like process to produce these chemicals inside these plants. But the problem was, scientists could see this end result, see this intermediary step, this P-cymonine, but they knew that chemically you just can't go from one step to the other. It's like having a bunch of ingredients and then getting a cake at the end and not knowing how they actually cooked it. Did they use a stove? Did they use an oven? What did they use to actually provide the heat and transform that process? If you don't know what that process is, it could be pretty mysterious to see a packet of cake mix and then an actual cake and not know how you got there. Now, unlike in the, in the cake step example there, what they actually discovered was that there's actually an, an intermediary product that's produced. The problem is, it occurs inside these plant cells so fleetingly as part of sort of a reactant result of this chemical process step. It's there for only but moments, which is what makes observing it so difficult. Now, this missing step, once you identify it, sort of outlines how you can start at all the base ingredients and end up with thymol and carbocol being formed. Now, in, in this long-running step process, actually, it's pretty much identical to produce thymol and carbocol, which makes sense since they have such similar properties. But around step four, they start to deviate and you get the real true differences between these two substances. And if you keep going, adding additional steps to this chemical production line process, that produce thymol and carbocol. Well, you can also make thymohydroquinone and thymoquinine, which have also anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor-like effects. So inside these herbs are existing basically a production line of producing helpful chemicals, helpful chemicals that we can do a lot of things with. And the researchers took this process step now that they understood it completely and applied it to a model plant like tobacco and got it to produce thymol itself. Anyway, it's only happening in small quantities, but it means that they fully understood how these chemicals were synthesized and all the associated enzymes that required to produce it inside a plant, which is a really useful thing because researchers up until this point to actually try and get at which plant had the better production of thymol or caracol, they were just looking for the ones that smelt the best because effectively that was the best indicator that they had of the concentration or the production ability of these particular chemical processes. But now that they understand it completely, then they don't have to optimize for smell. They still can if they want, but they can approach it in a much more methodical way. And it also means that they can develop targeted biomarkers for selections of plants with high essential oil content. And they can also help develop new active substances based on these thymol and carbacol. Now that they understand these processes better and then use that to develop better materials for fighting bacterial infections, inflammation or cancer, you name it. Now, this is not done directly to the plants, but by taking the process that's proven in plants and adapting it for industrial scale production. That's how modern medicine pretty much works. So the smell of some great herbs like thyme and oregano are really popular and great for cooking. But they can also help us understand how to produce chemicals that have great antimicrobial or antispasmodic properties. And even with a bit of extra refinement, we can turn these into things that can help us fight lots of infections, inflammation, and even cancer. So great research published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Lead author on this paper was Santo Kraus, a large team of collaborators from Martin Luther University Harlem-Wittenberg and Purdue University of the United States. types of fruit to consume when you're on the go, aside from a banana, is of course uh, mandarin. 
mandarin orange, otherwise known as a tangerine, clementine, satsuma, you name it. These small little oranges with an easy to peel skin that you break off all the little pieces, they're the perfect bite-sized snack. You can fit inside your hand, don't require a lot of effort to peel and maintain, and are beloved in lots of different cultures as major gifts around Christmas or New Year periods. Maybe in Southeast Asian cultures and East Asian cultures, they can symbolize often good fortune and eaten around specific key events of the calendar. In North America and Europe, sometimes they can be given as Christmas gifts. And all of these things make it a pretty tasty fruit, but it's also got a pretty incredible journey about how it has been developed, bred, and spread across the world. And that has been illuminated by a paper published in the journal Nature Communications with researchers from the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology Graduate University, OIST. And in this paper, lead author was Gu Hong Albert Wu, along with a large list of other collaborators. Now, what they were diving into here was the particular journey of the Mandarin plant out of the home regions of it in mainland China and spread across to Japan and the islands around it and across Asia more generally. And then, of course, obviously to our plates. Now, one of the things you have to talk about here is the way in which plants can reproduce. You can, like most things, do it in a couple of different ways. You can reproduce sexually. That is to combine some input from a mother or a father and create a new plant. Or you can produce clonally. And that is either you produce without the input from another parent, just on its own, a sexual cloning, or you can produce with sexual input from another partner, but only actually pass on the DNA of one of those parents. So we're going to talk about the way in which mandarins work here. And it's pretty interesting because like many other plants, wild citrus that you find out growing in a random species in the home of mandarins, Hunan province in China, these normally can be found to be producing sexually. That is, they take the pollen of the father combining with the egg of the mother, mixing the genes from both parents and ending up with a new combination in the seed. Now, if you look at that compared to some other types of mandarin, well, they can actually produce identical copy of their mother's DNA without any input from the father, clonally reproducing. So that seed then grows to be a clone of the mother tree. Now, this is a pretty interesting thing because using these traits, you can actually trace back the journey of plant species and the diversification of a long time by looking at the genetics and looking at what happened to them over this many hundreds of years of farming and hybridization. Now, if you look at most mandarin types you'll find out there today, most of them have actually come, which you can trace through the genetics, from mandarins that grow in the Hunan province of southern China. It's also a place where wild mandarins grow in forests there that are also producing their own new species all the time. So when scientists dive into this treasure trove of mandarin data, they can produce genomic sequencing of all these different species that they found. And what they found, pretty surprisingly, was that actually some of the wild mandarins of this mountainous region actually are split into two types of subspecies. And one of those can actually produce in the way that is this clonal method where they're genetically identical to the mother. And the other can produce in the normal traditional method that you would have thought of, where they have a combination of the mix. Now, if you then take mandarins from maybe somewhere else, perhaps the island of Okinawa, a Japanese island in the south, which actually has a lot of different roles to play in the diversification of different mandarin species, like the Shiikuwasha 
and of the tachibana, two very important traditional Japanese fruits. Now, if you look at wild growing plants around Okinawa, you can find a lot of a lot of shiikubasha-like citrus plants that produce really small acidic fruit, and they're not really particularly tasty or great, and so they tend to get ignored by local farmers, and no one's really hybridized those to make them into commercial crops because there's really no commercial point to do so. Not tasty, they're not great, they're not big, so why bother, yeah? Now, when they look at the actual genetic sequence of that particular random one that they found, they discover that it actually belongs to an undescribed species, which they call the Ryukyu mandarin, or in its technical term, the Citrus Ryukinesis. And when you look at that type of mandarin, what you can see is that it actually produces it actually produces using the sexual method, which is very different to the other well-known Shiikuwasha type mandarins that produces type clones. And when you look at the Shiikuwasha, they're actually a hybrid, a really interesting hybrid that's developed. One of the parents in the formation of this hybrid species is from the local Ryukyuan species, and the other actually has come all the way across from mainland China. Which means that if you were to pick up a Shiikuwasha mandarin today and compare it to another one, well, they're actually all be half-siblings of each other. Which means that some tens of thousands of years ago, an Asian mandarin was transported from Hunan province all the way to the Ryukyu Islands, where then it met some other random Ryukyu citrus and bred in with them. And this produced what then would become later on this whole other type of well-known and beloved species of mandarin, like the Shikawasha. Because at some point, this Shikawasha mandarin obviously had to acquire its ability to reproduce with this clonal asexual method, and then obviously passed it down to all its clones, its children. So that had to be introduced some point into the chain, and it has obviously come from one of the mainland mandarins from China. But it's got a lot of other properties which has been bred in from this local one. And it also means that species like the Tachibana, another really important mandarin species in Japan, also come from this melding of this Ryukyu species and another mainland China mandarin. But maybe it didn't fully finalize that exact subspecies there in the Ryukyu Islands, but probably more in mainland Japan, brought up to mainland Japan where it was bred and bred to create that new species. So now that they've picked up that Shikuwasha and Tachibana are basically half-sibling family in some way to this Ryukyuan type of mandarins, they started looking across all other types of mandarins that they could find, and they were finding these all were related in some really large, strange, messy family. Even the famous Kunebo, the father of the Setsuma, very famous type of mandarins, was again also hybridized with this Ryukyu mandarin. Now, the Kunebo was actually brought to Okinawa from Indochina around four or five hundred years ago through maritime trade, and then bred in with this Ryukyu mandarin type to then create what was becoming the Setsuma type mandarin that's well known across the world. And since it has the ability to clone itself by seeds, as it's been known to, that it has to have come back from the Mangshan type region inside Hunan province of China. So what it means here is that you can trace through understanding the way in which these plants produce, both sexually and asexually through cloning methods, the whole history of how this species was, was propagated by industrious traders, animals, random interactions in a trans when a seed is transported to a new area, 
creating all this variety of species that you see on the supermarket shelves with huge differences of cultural importance, flavors, and taste that actually we can then piece together and trace back. That is truly fascinating to think about uncovering the diversification and the spread of species of something we could take for granted and how connected that a lot of them are. Because we're not talking about, oh, you know, this is a cousin to this thing. Because they can produce asexually through a cloning method, they're literally half-siblings in many cases. We're talking about a really, really strong, close genetic relation. Very different to when you imagine like the breeding of dogs or cat species, for example. So this is some really fascinating insights into the way in which something that you've had on your plate or in your hand has undergone a really, really long journey and is connected straight through the past, through cloning back to Hunan province in China and through some industrious trading and also breeding over hundreds and hundreds of years. This paper was published in the journal Nature Communications with lead author Gu Hong Albert Wu and researchers from the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology University. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. A tale of cloning and trade that produced the mandarins that we love today and how oregano and thyme produce chemicals that are not only tasty but also very important medical effects. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.